about 10 days after the accident when the after effects of the electrocution really started to show up. It's not a headache. The pain is just unbearable. I have these these sensations like my brain is loose inside my skull. If I turn my head too quickly left or right, it feels it feels like my brain sloshes around. Um, I don't know how else to describe that part. My eyes, not like eyebrows or cheekbones, but literally my eyes burn deep into my, my skull. I mean, my eyes hurt so bad that it hurts to blink. In March of 1991, Danny Elliott was electrocuted for about 15 minutes straight. It left him in severe chronic pain, which doctors said would eventually go away. You know, this will go away. You know, it'll get better. This is just the after effects. You know, it'll get better. But it didn't. And weeks turned into months. Until finally, he made a decision. To end my pain the only way I knew how, and that was going to be, unfortunately, to end my life. Because I could not, I wasn't getting any relief, and I could not live with that pain anymore. Uh, even though I had, you know, a wife and, uh, and a family and, you know, nephews that I loved a lot. And I didn't think there was anything else out there that could relieve my pain. I was going to end everything. I was going to put an end to it. Around this time, his family asked him to try out a new doctor. And I decided, I told myself, I'll go see this new doctor. If this doctor wants to do what I've already been tried on, which is antidepressants, anti-seizure, anti-convulsants, blood pressure medication, Vicodin, Oxycontin, whatever I've tried before, if that's what this doctor wants to do, then I will have seen the doctor like they wanted to, and then I'm going to take my pain control in my own hands, and I'm going to end it. And I go to that appointment, and my life changed that day. That's when he talked to me about the fentanyl patches and the fentanyl lozenges. Uh, fentanyl patches for long-term pain and the lozenges for breakthrough pain, short-term relief. At this point, I had never heard the word fentanyl in my life. I didn't know that this drug even existed. For over 15 years, Danny had some relief and was able to live his life again. But then, in the summer of 2018, he finds out his doctor has been arrested. And the day I lost him, I was in shock. At first, I thought it was just maybe uh, not as serious as it, as it ended up being. I just thought maybe it was a bump in the road. But then when I learned more about the charges and everything, which are absurd, I knew that I had lost a doctor. And that was the beginning of a very, very difficult stretch for me, um, trying to find a doctor and get treatment. I mean, it was, it was awful. I'm Keegan Hamilton, and this is Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis. Episode 5, The Happiest Thing Ever. 
When you hear about fentanyl in the news, it's often illicit fentanyl, stuff made and sold on the black market from underground labs in China or Mexico. But fentanyl also has medical uses. If you ever had surgery, there's a good chance you were even given fentanyl as an anesthetic. It's also been in high demand during the coronavirus pandemic because it's used when people are put on ventilators. Fentanyl was invented in 1960, but it wasn't widely prescribed as a pain treatment until the 1990s. And it's been getting more popular ever since. In 2018 alone, Americans filled 4 million fentanyl prescriptions. Now, with so many people dying of overdoses, the government is cracking down on all opioids. Legal. State investigators raided a suspected pill mill in South Oklahoma City. The two are accused of running a so-called pill mill operation. These are clinics and doctors and pharmacies that feed the beast of addiction. And illegal. Law enforcement officers in Virginia seized enough fentanyl to kill 14 million people as part of what they're calling Operation Cookout. More than 40 pounds of fentanyl seized in Dayton. And a massive bust. But today's 42-count indictment is the result of a fentanyl bust that's the largest in Nassau County's history. In the U.S., around 50 million people suffer from intense chronic pain. And even though the legal opioid market generated $25 billion last year, it's getting harder for patients to obtain the legal medications they need to function. I guess for starters, uh, can you just state your full name? Yes, uh, I'm Danny Elliott. Where are you from? Uh, Warner Robins, Georgia. Uh, I literally was born and raised here, yes. It's the hometown of a very large Air Force base. It's about a population of about 100,000. It's a good place to grow up, a good area. Through his mid-20s, Danny had only taken prescription painkillers a few times, right after surgery. Then, one night, when he's 29... The exact date was March 3rd of 1991. He has an accident that changes his life. Danny's over at his mom's place, helping her out around the house. This tropical depression or something had come over the southeast, over middle Georgia area, and just stalled. And it was raining like I've never seen it rain before. I mean, it was raining a lot. His mom's basement has flooded. So Danny and his dad use a couple electric pumps to suck the water into buckets and dump them outside. They work all night. Danny's using a broom to push the water toward the pump. And at one point, Apparently, I was going to reach for the broom, and an arc uh, came up from the pump, uh, from the electrical pump, and hit me, and I collapsed on top of it. I had uh, a burn on my chest directly over my heart. That arc is an electric shock. Even though Danny's dad is just on the other side of the room, he can't hear Danny scream over the roar of the electric water pumps. His dad estimates it took about 15 minutes to turn around and realize what had happened. And as she walked around the corner to where I was, she said I was doing a, a little bit of like a Superman thing. I was going stiff and then limp. Stiff and then limp. Stiff and then limp. Stiff and then limp. Danny's dad unplugs the pump, stopping the electricity. And he rolled me off of the chair and onto my back, and he says that I wasn't breathing, and he couldn't find a heartbeat, so he started doing CPR. So you you had no heart rate. You you basically died for a minute. It sounds like in that basement. Yeah, and that's what my dad says. He said I was dead. He said I wasn't. EMTs managed to revive him. He ends up spending three agonizing days in the intensive care unit. I don't know how else to describe the pain. It was just a a severe throbbing in my head, and then anytime I tried to move my 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 body, uh, just the the muscles, the pain was just white hot kind of pain. 
When Danny leaves the hospital, he thinks his injuries will heal and life will go back to normal because that's what the doctors have told him. Before his injury, Danny had been working as a traveling sales rep for a pharmaceutical company, a company that, oddly enough, later became part of Janssen Pharmaceutica. That's the company started by Paul Janssen, the inventor of fentanyl. But when Danny tries to start work again, he can't make it through the day. The pain is unbearable. Like I said, I, I'm stuck in bed for a week, sometimes two weeks at a time. When the, when the severe pain, uh, I would be stuck in the bed for just days on end. It was unbelievable. It changed who I am. It, I think it changed my personality because being in that kind of pain, uh, it's, it's difficult to think of the future when you're when pain, you know, when the months turned into years and then the years just kept growing and growing. It gets so bad that Danny can't leave the house anymore. Just being outside in daylight makes his head hurt. Over the next few years, he sees doctor after doctor after doctor. They try everything. But, you know, and the doctors would, would prescribe physical therapy or they'd prescribe going to see a psychiatrist. That, that happened. I was put on antidepressants. Just every kind of treatment you can possibly imagine, except for pain management. I mean, except for treatment of pain. And again, still, the acupuncturist, after six months, he's the one that told us not to do anymore because it wasn't helping, uh, as did the hypnosis guy and the chiropractor. And all the doctors would say, you know, this is probably going to go away. It's probably going to get better. One day you're going to wake up and you're going to feel better. And I'm still waiting for that day. Still waiting. 28 years. Some of those doctors don't even believe that Danny's pain is real. Oh, I, I didn't encounter just skepticism. I encountered a few doctors who flat out told me they thought that I was, I didn't even know what the word malingering meant at the time. I had to look it up. I was told I was malingering. I was faking it. I just, I didn't want to get better. Even Oxycontin, the first painkiller he's prescribed, doesn't work. I can tell you exactly, um, and in fact, that is the point where I was at my worst. When I left that doctor's office and she just wanted to increase the medication after I told her that it wasn't working for me, and I threw those prescriptions away, I had reached the point right then where I wasn't going to be able to live with this anymore. I had, I had reached the point that I was going to start making arrangements uh, to end my pain the only way I knew how, and that was going to be, unfortunately, to end my life. But right around this time, his family asked him to talk to one more doctor, a neuropsychiatrist named Thomas Sachi, who prescribes him fentanyl. And when I got the prescriptions filled, and after a day, after a few hours of use, I had gotten pain relief for the first time in 10 plus years. And it was, it was a lifesaver. It was an absolute lifesaver. I was ecstatic. I was so happy there was a medication that could turn, I call it turn the volume of my pain down from a eight or nine or even 10 sometimes to a, a six or a five. The pain doesn't get much lower than that, but for me, that's almost pain-free. It was the happiest thing I've, I've ever experienced in my life, ever. The happiest thing ever. Mm-hmm. 
Even though Danny works for a pharma company, he's never heard of fentanyl before. Fentanyl was invented just 60 years ago, which makes it a relatively new opioid. Opioids have been around in one form or another for thousands of years, and the line between recreational and medical use has always been kind of blurry. In 1803, a German pharmacist extracted morphine from poppy plants. Morphine is basically the main active ingredient in opium, only it's stronger and more pure. In the U.S., opioids were relatively hard to come by until the Civil War, when morphine was widely used to treat wounded soldiers. This introduced an entire generation of American men to painkillers for the first time in history. But the real game-changer happened in 1874, when scientists discovered diacetylmorphine, better known as heroin. The pharmaceutical company Bayer started selling heroin like aspirin, claiming it was a non-addictive substitute for morphine. In fact, it was Bayer that came up with the name heroin because it was supposed to be heroic. By the late 1800s, you could buy heroin over the counter. It was marketed for everything, from menstrual cramps to children's colds. And a new class of people started to get addicted, rich white women, which meant lawmakers started to pay attention. What came next set the stage for the war on drugs and what eventually happens with fentanyl and today's opioid crisis. In 1914, Congress started to regulate a bunch of drugs, including heroin, not because of health concerns, but because of a racist backlash against Chinese immigrants who were blamed for bringing opium into the country. The top drug official at the time made the case for outlawing opium by saying it caused white women to sleep with Chinese men. The people pushing these laws sold the public on the idea that outlawing drugs would just kind of make them go away. Criminal syndicates might give up drug traffic entirely if nationwide laws provided for stringent penalties to counteract the tremendous profits. And if these laws were energetically enforced. Guess how that turned out? In the United States of America, Hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys and girls are becoming hopeless dope addicts every year. Even though it had become illegal, lots of Americans still wanted heroin. Meanwhile, on the medical side of things, it became almost taboo to prescribe opioids for chronic pain, at least for a while. But by the middle of the 20th century, there were new partially synthetic opioid painkillers, drugs like oxycodone, which is derived from morphine and finished in a lab with chemicals. This is the stuff that eventually gets sold as Oxycontin, which doctors started prescribing widely in the 2000s. Fentanyl was created around the same time as Oxycodone, but because it was so strong, fentanyl wasn't considered something that should be widely used. Instead, it was thought of as a last resort for very extreme pain. Paul Jansen, the inventor of fentanyl, reportedly said the idea that it could ever become a commonly used street drug was laughable. The idea of pain management for chronic ailments like a bad back, lasting effects of an injury, or nerve damage, that's a relatively new part of medical history. But since the 90s, more and more doctors have looked at pain as something that should be relieved with drugs, specifically opioids. I was referred to the pain management clinic where, you know, they put me on a fairly high dose of, I think I started out, you know, on morphine and Vicodin and just various opioids, you know. 
and you know throughout the, my time going to the you know pain doctor my pain was never managed that's brandon hubbard the fentanyl trafficker from the start of the series while it's not everyone's story of addiction many people do believe that medically prescribed painkillers led them down the path to addiction because they were never given any other options to handle their pain good morning But there are places in this country that have been trying for decades to change how modern medicine treats pain. And the University of Washington is the birthplace of some pretty revolutionary ideas about minimizing the use of painkillers. It's Hamilton. We're not patients. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Last year, I got to visit and sit in on a pain management session with a psychologist doing hypnosis. The patient was a 70-year-old man named Tim who suffers from severe chronic pain. What we can do is put you in that brown chair, and then I can park this for you. Now, reverse, pull it towards me. I'm going to get you certified on that, Dave. After being lifted out of his electric wheelchair, Tim sits in a big comfy chair next to David Patterson, a specialist in clinical hypnosis. Patterson warned us that playing this next bit could hypnotize our listeners, so fair warning. And notice that as you focus on your breathing whether that actually changes the process of breathing. And it might be that just simply by paying attention to your breathing that it begins to alter. And you might already notice how slow, deep, and regular your breathing is. Tim's eyes are closed. He's breathing slowly and looks peaceful. And maybe now you're thinking about monkeys, Tim. And they're very hard to capture because they're in the top of 300-foot trees. But they love rice. And so what the natives do is that they carve out some coconuts and they put some rice in it. Patterson keeps going like this for a while. He says these people trap monkeys by putting rice inside the coconuts. Then the monkeys get their hands stuck inside and can't get away. And so here the natives come laughing to pick up the monkeys. The monkeys are trying to run away with these two big coconuts behind them, and all they need to do to be free is to just let go. A few minutes later, Tim comes out of it. How do you feel? I was having pretty bad back spasms in the middle of that. And I intentionally really focused on his words and I could make them go in the background more. Tim used to be a football player when he was younger, a big defensive lineman. But now he looks thin and frail. He has Guillain-Barre syndrome, which causes his body's immune system to attack his nerves. He'd been prescribed fentanyl for the pain. What occurs is I get electric shock just like hitting a 120-volt outlet, various parts of my body. And so one of the things that I've been working with Dr. Patterson on is the ability to kind of distract myself from the pain and use self-hypnosis and some other techniques to get myself not focusing on the pain but focusing on something else. Tim has some of the most severe pain that I've ever seen in a patient. We've used cognitive behavioral approaches where we've looked at the thoughts that Tim has about his pain. And there's a saying that 
pain times resistance equals suffering. So, so there can be pain, but if people keep resisting the pain, then it leads to suffering. management they're doing at the University of Washington all started with one guy, Dr. John J. Bonica. Ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, get ready for the big show. Today, he's known as the founding father of pain relief. But for a long time, he was better known by the name The Masked Marvel. For the first part of his career, Bonica basically lived a double life. A Sicilian immigrant who was a medical student by day, a masked wrestler on nights and weekends. He helped pay his medical school tuition by touring with the circus in the summers, billed as the strongman who could pin anyone for a dollar. But for a long time, he kept that part of his life secret. Very good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to your all-star wrestling show. His medical colleagues had no idea that in 1941, he was crowned the light heavyweight champion of the world. Nor did they know he was headlining matches at Madison Square Garden even though he'd sometimes show up to perform surgeries with a black eye. The thing is, Bonica understood pain, because he had suffered a ton of wrestling injuries himself. Torn hip joints, fractured ribs, cauliflower ears. He'd also inflicted pain on others. And this double life eventually helped him create a whole new approach to treating pain. At the end of a five-day trip from England, the Queen Elizabeth, world's largest ocean liner, pulls into New York Harbor. Aboard are almost 15,000 happy GIs. During World War II, he joined the Army and was put in charge of all pain control at one of the largest Army hospitals in the country, near Seattle. And the entire nation welcomes them home. And he found that many wounded soldiers complained that they still felt incredible pain even after an injured limb had been amputated, or that they had pain in a part of their body with no obvious injuries, which at the time made no medical sense. So Bonica became obsessed with pain management. He gathered doctors from all specialties for lunch meetings to figure out new ways to help his pain patients. At the time, there was very little research on pain. So he wrote a book that's still known as the Pain Bible. There had never been a book published that addressed pain as a problem in and of itself. He proposed new ways of looking at pain and new treatments that are still used today, like nerve-blocking injections. Medicine looked at pain as a byproduct of some disease state or some injury, and the implication always was, if you successfully treat the disease or the injury, the pain will go away. Dr. John Lozier is one of Bonica's protégés. I'm John Lozier. Nice to meet you, John. Hi. What Bonica taught him was that you can treat an injury or illness, but still continue to feel pain from it, like a nagging back problem or nerve damage, like what Danny Elliott has. Bonica revolutionized how doctors think about pain. He opened a center for pain management, which is still considered groundbreaking half a century later, which is where we met Dr. Lozier. How long have you been working in the field of pain medicine? Well, I've been on the faculty here since 1969, which, and all along, a major part of what I've done has been related to pain. Lozier trained under Bonica. 
The goal was not to make their pain less. The goal was to rehabilitate them so they could perform the activities that were appropriate for someone of that age and, and gender. Lozier and Bonica didn't rely on opioids to treat pain. Instead, each patient had their own individualized approach that could include treatments like physical therapy, seeing a psychologist, and acupuncture. In the 60s, this sort of multidisciplinary approach was revolutionary. Their pain always got better. When the patient left the program and said, thank you very much, I'm able to go back to work, you felt like you just accomplished a miracle. But Bonica's approach doesn't work for every patient. We screened our patients very carefully to identify those who we thought would benefit from this type of program. So, for example, when we ran into somebody who said, I don't believe in relaxation therapy. When you make your mind relax, the devil enters your soul. We would say, mm, we're probably not going to succeed with that person, okay? <laughs> Even for people who are open to the idea, having multiple specialists and changing their lifestyle doesn't work for everyone. It's a lot easier to just give someone a prescription for pain pills. With the way the U.S. healthcare system works, a lot of people never even get the chance to try this type of treatment. The typical standard of care isn't the multidisciplinary approach pioneered by John Bonica. That basically fell by the wayside in the 1990s, the decade that opioids took over pain treatment. doctor in 1998 to get treatment for a bad back or arthritis, there's a chance you might have seen this video. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. But that is far from actual fact. It's an early ad for OxyContin, which was considered a new wonder drug. It's made by Purdue Pharmaceutical, which was founded by the Sackler family. They made a fortune coming up with new ways to sell drugs to people. Here's an ad the company made for doctors. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. Purdue claimed that their time-release formula for OxyContin drastically reduced the risk of addiction. That claim, as we now know, was bullshit. People figure out how to crush up oxys and snort them or inject them, just like heroin. The truth is that using opioids for a short period of time under a doctor's supervision is relatively safe. But when you start prescribing millions of opioids, not keeping track of where pills are going and who is using them, it's a recipe for disaster. That's exactly what happened in the 90s and 2000s. Some of the pressure to rethink pain medicine came from drug companies. But there were also doctors with good intentions who argued that pain was being undertreated. They said too many patients were suffering. People like Danny Elliott, the guy from the beginning of this episode, who tried everything for his pain. I saw, uh, I think it was 25 doctors in the first 
two years, and I did acupuncture for six months on my own. Uh, we found somebody that did hypnosis. We went through hypnosis. I forget how many rounds of hypnosis there was. Uh, just trying to find something to relieve the pain a little bit. Uh, went to a chiropractor. I was put on antidepressants. Um, just every kind of treatment you can possibly imagine. There are some people who only seem to get relief from opioids. I'd never heard the word fentanyl in my life. I didn't know that this drug even existed. And after a day, after a few hours of use, I had gotten pain relief for the first time in, in 10 plus years. By the late 90s, some of America's top medical providers, like the VA, had reclassified pain as the fifth vital sign, something that needs to be checked just like a patient's heart rate or blood pressure. A few doctors had tracked pain before this, but around this time, many hospitals began requiring doctors to ask patients to rate their pain on a scale of one to 10. It's also when they started to aggressively treat pain. And the easiest way to do that was with opioids. But as these drugs became more available, more people started using them recreationally and getting them from all kinds of sources. Then, as overdose deaths started to increase in the mid-2000s, there was a backlash against prescription painkillers. By 2010, about 12 million Americans reported taking prescription painkillers for non-medical use, meaning they were using them just to get high. That year, enough painkillers were prescribed to medicate every American adult around the clock for a month. So the DEA tightened up on the supply, and there was a backlash against doctors prescribing opioids. That's what happened to Danny Elliott's doctor. He spoke to me like I knew what I was dealing with, like I had some intelligence. I mean, he didn't talk down to me. He didn't talk over my head. He didn't talk around me. He spoke right to me. The doctor who first prescribed fentanyl for Danny was named Thomas Satchi. He asked me about my pain, and I was able to describe it to him, and he not just believed it, he understood what I was feeling. But in 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice started cracking down on doctors suspected of prescribing opioids to people who didn't need them. This year, we're charging 601 defendants, including 76 doctors, 23 pharmacists, 19 nurses, and other medical personnel with more than $2 billion in healthcare fraud. Much of this fraud is related to our ongoing opioid crisis. That was then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions in June 2018. One of the doctors arrested in that takedown he's talking about was Dr. Thomas Satchi, Danny Elliott's doctor. In a Macon federal courtroom, Magistrate Judge Charles Weigel ordered Dr. Thomas Satchi to remain behind bars while awaiting his trial on drug charges. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Middle District of Georgia says Satchi unlawfully prescribed opioids. The charges against Sachi are pretty serious. Federal prosecutors say he prescribed drugs that caused two patients to die from overdoses. In the courtroom, the prosecution trying to prove Sachi is a danger to the public, identifying five guns seized at the doctor's office. Sachi has pleaded not guilty to the charges, and he's scheduled to go to trial later this year. Through his lawyer, he declined a request for an interview. The lawyer denied that Sachi did anything illegal. He said that the people who died had underlying health conditions and that the guns were in the office as a security precaution.
Danny is adamant that, as far as he knows, Sachi did everything by the book, that he wasn't running a pill mill. In fact, when he first prescribed uh, back in 2002, at every monthly appointment, there was a, uh, a urine drug test that I had to submit to the entire time that I saw him. Danny says Sachi checked his pill supply to ensure he wasn't selling his meds for profit. Sachi did prescribe Danny a lot of fentanyl, but Danny says that's only because his condition requires a high dose. What really bothers Danny is that the DEA doesn't seem to care about what happened to Dr. Sachi's patients after they arrested him. And the day I lost him, I was in shock. With Sachi in jail, Danny has to find a new doctor. At first, I thought maybe it was a bump in the road, but then when I learned more about the charges and everything, which are absurd, I knew that I had lost a doctor. Sachi was arrested two days before Danny was supposed to see him. So Danny quickly runs out of fentanyl. And that was the beginning of a very, very difficult stretch for me, um, trying to find a doctor and get treatment. I mean, it was The DEA put out a list of pain clinics in the area, but Danny couldn't get an appointment. Um, it was terrifying. It was, ter- it was awful. It was so bad. I mean, not just the pain. The pain was, is as bad as I, you know, as I can possibly even try to explain. But then to have those withdrawal symptoms on, on top of that, the withdrawal part, I, I mean, I guess that's the best word to use for it. That's pretty easy to describe. I mean, you're, you know, burning up hot and then ice cold, minute to minute, horrible nausea, jittery, sweating. You're going to the bathroom quite often. That is, I mean, your nose is running like crazy. I mean, you're exhausted, but you can't sleep. You know, it makes me realize, I assume that's what, like, heroin abusers go through or whatever. At this point, Danny had been on opioids for so long that his body needs them to function normally. That's called dependence, which is different than addiction. Dependence means you've built up a tolerance, which happens to everyone who uses opioids. Addiction means you keep using drugs even though you know they're hurting you. And that only happens to a minority of people who use opioids. Dependence and addiction often go hand in hand. But people like Danny can use opioids like fentanyl without getting addicted or having it hurt them. Instead, opioids allow him to function. But with his doctor arrested, Danny was suddenly cut off from fentanyl. Danny saw one doctor after another, but none of them would prescribe him fentanyl at the dose he'd been on before. For the most part, I mean, I had a doctor laugh. I had a doctor, um, like, sit back in their chair and shrug their shoulders. And, you know, he said, you know, well, I can't do that. Without fentanyl, Danny was in constant pain and back on the verge of suicide. When he finally found a doctor willing to treat him, that person was in Houston. So Danny had to fly there from his home in Georgia. And after six months, he had to switch doctors again. Before the coronavirus outbreak, he was flying all the way to Los Angeles to get his prescription. And he still worries constantly about getting cut off again. The DEA and uh, the federal government has cut back every single month. I've lost coverage. I haven't got my medication. I've lost a doctor. My insurance says no. My pharmacist says no. It's been, it's been a disaster. Since the backlash against opioids started, tens of thousands of pain patients have been forced to reduce their opioid dosages. And some, like Danny, have been cut off entirely with little or no warning. Now, the coronavirus outbreak is making things even harder. Danny told us about it in a recent phone call. When this virus started, they were encouraging people to uh, stock up on medications. Well, you can't stock up on 
on narcotics or uh, opioids, you know, you, you can't stock up. You can only get so much at a time. It's a dangerous situation. The FDA has warned doctors that taking patients off of opioids too quickly can cause, quote, uncontrolled pain, psychological distress, and suicide. And I, and I know that I'm just one of millions of people that are experiencing this. There are a lot of suicides due to pain. And a lot of it's because people can't get medications or their doctors quit prescribing medications or they can't get their medications filled. It's, uh, it, these are desperate times for a lot of people. It's, it's really bad. Alternative therapies help some people manage pain, but those treatments don't work for everyone. For Danny Elliott, the only thing that numbs his pain is fentanyl. You know, people may listen to this and they may hear fentanyl. Well, they, because the media just constantly puts out fentanyl, 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 maybe they're thinking I'm taking drugs that's coming in from China or Mexico. You know, the media doesn't differentiate very well between pharmaceutical, you know, fentanyl medications versus this illicit synthetic fentanyl that's put into heroin and cocaine and meth and, you know, it's on the streets. If we could take Tylenol or Advil to do with our problems, we'd do it in a heartbeat. And there are a lot of caring physicians that would like to help, but they can't because they're in jail or they're threatened with jail. And it's absurd. Opioid painkillers can save the lives of chronic pain sufferers like Danny Elliott, but they can also ruin the lives of people who become addicted. Next time on Painkiller... Three o'clock in the morning, the cops came to my house. We head back to North Dakota, to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Brought a sister and a little baby. And at the time, the baby was um, between seven and nine months old. She was still in Pampers. Um, she still used the bottle. Like, to me, it's like she couldn't breathe. And that's what was scaring me, because she would, like, hold her breath for a, a while. And then just, like, she would come out of it and start breathing again. And I didn't know what was wrong with her. Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis is a Spotify original production in partnership with Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Keegan Hamilton. From Vice News, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell is our producer. Editing by Annie Aviles. Sound design and original scoring by Steve Bone with help from Pran Bandy. Kate Osborne and Annie Aviles are our executive producers. From Spotify, executive producers are Liz Gately and Erica Clark. Supervising producer is Jake Kleinberg. Associate producer is Baron Farmer. Additional production assistance by Sarah Shariari. Thanks to Dr. Stefan Curtez and Kate Nicholson. At the University of Washington, thanks to Bobby Nodell, Dr. Caleb Bantagreen, and Dr. Heather Tick. Check out our website for some cool old photos of Dr. John Bonica as the masked marvel. That's at painkiller.vice.com. If you're struggling with drug addiction and want to get help, call SAMHSA's National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Or visit findtreatment.gov. 